Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Kurt McCormick used to love cars, especially the Triumph TR3 he owned when he was a teenager. You probably don't know what that is. It's a British sports car, very small, really fun. And he's always admired the engineering that makes the automobile run. I was a backyard car mechanic. I loved cars. The internal combustion engine is an amazing thing. As McCormick got older, though, he began to realize that these amazing things were doing some serious damage. Yeah, the 40-some-odd thousand people that are killed every year, climate change, (laughs) the air pollution, the several hundred thousand people that still die from air pollution every year in the U.S. So sometimes when you love something, you have to let it go. McCormick doesn't drive anymore or even own a car. He hasn't since 2002, when his Nissan Sentra took its last breath. I called up a junkyard, and they came and got it. And I thought, I'm going to try to do without a car. And it was surprisingly easy. The 67-year-old Burlington resident is tall and thin, maybe from all the walking and biking he does. And he says he can get to work in Montpelier and just about anywhere else he needs to go without a car. But he lives in downtown Burlington, and he can literally see the nearest bus stop from his living room window. Anyway, you'll see it. It'll be right where that white car is. That's a stop right there. Sometimes I'm literally running off my porch, waving, trying to get him to not pull out. The reason McCormick decided to give up his car was to force himself to use public transportation to make his lifestyle align with his values. There are probably lots of people in Vermont who would like to do less driving, but what about the ones who can't see the bus stop from their house? I have the sense that people who live in Burlington maybe do have an effective system, but I live in central Vermont. This is Eve Jacobs Carnahan. She lives in Montpelier. For the past four years, she and her husband, Paul Carnahan, have been sharing a car, a Tesla Model 3. What we tend to do is plan ahead for the week, and I'll say, okay, Eve works at home. Her husband, Paul, works in Barrie, so he usually gets the car. But say Eve has an afternoon meeting in Waterbury. There's no bus to Waterbury in the afternoon. I'm going to have to have the car that day. So Paul will catch the morning bus to Barrie. It works pretty well when the weather is good. It tends to not be able to keep its schedule when the weather is bad, and that's when it's most uncomfortable. When they can't make the bus work, either Paul or Eve will call a colleague or friend and ask for a ride. And my friends have now figured out that they're going to hear from me for some (laughs) of these regular monthly meetings. They now will approach me and say, hey, our monthly meeting of such and such is coming up. Do you want a ride? That's really interesting. So essentially, you, you're you relying on other people who have cars. And, and that's the way that you, between the two of you, with like some help from carpooling and so forth, can make it work. Yes. Eve and Paul could afford two cars. They share just one by choice to shrink their carbon footprint. But it's not easy. To get to Waterbury, to get to Burlington on the weekend, there is no good system. And Every time I run into some sort of frustration with not being able to get somewhere because I'm not the one with the car that day, I just say, why don't we have a better transit system here? Eve Jacobs-Carnahan, if you haven't figured it out, is today's question asker. What will it take to create an effective public transit system that enables Vermonters to dramatically reduce automobile use? A.K.A., how can we all drive less? The other reason that I really wonder about this 
is because Vermonters pride themselves on being so environmentally conscious. But this just seems to be a real conundrum. It's a conundrum, all right. Remember Kurt McCormick, the voluntarily carless guy we met at the very beginning? Not to bury the lead, but he's actually a state representative. When he commutes to Montpelier by bus, it's to the Vermont State House. And McCormick is also the chair of the House Transportation Committee. If anyone would have the answer to Eve's question, it's him. So, Kurt, what would it take to create a public transportation system that allowed Vermonters to dramatically reduce their reliance on cars? Well, I have the same question, and, I, and I've been clearly tasked with trying to solve that by the speaker when I was made chairman. So, does that mean you have the answer? It, it does not. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. And I'm Peter Hirschfeld. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been submitted and voted on by you, our audience. Because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Uh, this is Eve Jacobs Carnahan. Hi. And Eve is uh, the person who asked the question oh, that okay. spurred this whole reporting endeavor. Okay, great. Today, a question about public transportation that forces us to confront an ugly truth. We pride ourselves on our environmental ethic and our state land use laws and our building efficiency standards. But when it comes to transportation, it's a really big blind spot that Vermonters have. How big of a blind spot? More than 43% of Vermont's greenhouse gas emissions comes from transportation, more than any other economic sector. It's a number that's rising, while Vermonters' use of public transit is barely budging. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. All told, Vermont spends about $40 million a year on public transportation, and it turns out that's pretty high, compared to other rural states at least. There are places that you can live in uh, Vermont without having your own car. Burlington comes to mind. Some of our downtown centers have circulator services. That's Ross McDonald there. What's your current title right now? Public Transit Coordinator and Go Vermont uh, Program Manager. McDonald says one of the reasons he loves his job is that Vermont takes public transit really seriously. Vermont is one of 11 states with more than 40 percent of its population living in rural areas, and we spend 10 times more on public transit per capita than all but one of those states. Ross McDonald says that money funds a pretty robust network that provided almost 5 million so-called user trips in 2018. Traditional fixed route services uh, are generally in operation along those corridors that justify the investment. A fixed route service is when a public transit vehicle, buses in Vermont usually, travels a designated route on a fixed schedule, like the Montpelier Link Express, which takes the same route from Montpelier to Burlington at the same time every weekday. 
According to McDonald, the places that justify the investment in these kinds of services are places that have a lot of people or along busy highway corridors. McDonald says that means if you live in a super rural area, you probably won't find a fixed route bus anywhere nearby, and you're probably going to have a rough time getting around without a car. And McDonald says for him, Eve's inquiry begets another interesting question. When I saw the brave little state question, I was wondering, would we be interested even as a population to consider the nuances, the tax incentives and disincentives, the land use patterns to generate the revenues to provide public transit service to get everybody to where they want to get to when they want to get there? It's a good question. So what do Vermonters want from their public transportation system? One of the things that I would love to see as far as bus routes go is a bus that connects St. Albans to Milton. We took this opportunity to ask you, our brilliant audience, how you would improve public transit here. And as always, you delivered. Right now you can take the St. Albans commuter and get to Burlington. You can take the Milton commuter and get from Burlington to Milton, but there's no bus that connects the two. Hi, brave little state. Uh, my name is Dustin Tanner. Hi, my name is Kim Graham. I'm in Barrie, Vermont. This is Bennett from Middlesex. My name is Diana. Peter Johnkey. Annie Stratton. John Snell. My name is Molly DeFont. I live in Rockaberry, Vermont, and would love to see some sort of electric rail along the 12A corridor of the Amtrak. I guess if I was dreaming out loud, I'd love to see high-speed rail between Montreal and Boston and Montreal and New York City that had stops in Vermont. I commute to Montpelier from Hardwick three, sometimes four times per week for work. Nothing really exists for this section of the state. I'm an elder in Vermont, in Brandon, and there are few options. And I mean high-speed rail between 320 and 400 kilometers per hour. Truly high speed. That would be fantastic. What's frustrating, I can catch the train at Rutland at breakfast and be in Washington, D.C. by supper time. Yet going to Boston is much more complex. Even going to Montpelier from my town is complicated. I would love to see public transportation offered at least from Burlington through to Montpelier, maybe even further down into the West Lebanon White River Junction area. My dream public transit improvement would be to be able to get on a school bus. School buses travel the back roads, and it would solve the first mile, last mile problem as it's known in public transportation. My ideas for public transit improvement are to be able to walk out to the curb anywhere at any time, stick out my thumb or hold up a sign, and get picked up by the next car that came along. How could that happen? Well, we could select cars that are safe and well-maintained and drivers that are safe and well-maintained and allow them to become basically public Uber drivers. And with technology, I'm sure we can figure out a way to make it affordable for the state. Why not give people more options to get around? And I'd also love to see some more weekend service. We are looking at change and we have the opportunity to decide what that change looks like. Thanks so much. Thank you. And I hope uh, this gets on the air. Bye. It's one thing to fantasize about public transit utopias of the future, but for some people in Vermont, the question of how to get from point A to point B is more urgent. Am I at the right place? Huh? Am I at the right place? 
are you? Peter Hirschfeld. Peter Hirschfeld. I thought you were bigger. Hi, <laughs> I'm Marsh Kepnes. You thought I was bigger? Yeah. Television fattens people up. <laughs> <laughs> what do they say? Camera adds 10 pounds? It does, it does. Marsha Kepnes is 71 years old, and she lives in an old pink house about a mile outside Berry City. She's seen me on public television before, apparently, which is why she's surprised at my appearance in person. Okay, come um, on in. I'll stop the clock. Mr. George Kent. We're talking to Kepnes because she doesn't have a car. Not because she wouldn't love to drive, but because she can't. I have never, never driven. Okay. Because I've, I've always been legally blind. That part about never driving isn't entirely true. When Kepnes was a teenager, her dad let her get behind the wheel during a visit to Cape Cod. I pressed too hard on the gas because I wasn't used to the pedals, and we went up a sand dune. And my and that was the, the the last time my father took 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 me driving. Kepnes moved to Vermont from the Boston area when she was in her late twenties. I knew when I came came when I came up here that I could that I that it was unfair to expect anything like anything like the MT, MTA in Boston. And for a while, at least, Kepnes says the public transportation system in Barrie was more than serviceable. She could get to her kids' schools, go to all the food stores and shopping centers she liked, but then her knees gave out, and she couldn't navigate the mile-long walk down the hill to the nearest bus stop. As situations in, in, in increase my need, the transportation system became less and less adequate. Remember when we talked about fixed route service? Well, Marsha Kepnes relies on a different kind of public transit called demand response. It's when a customer requests a ride in advance and then a bus or van or car takes them directly to their destination. So when Kepnes needs to go somewhere, she relies on volunteer drivers from the Vermont Association for the Blind and demand response buses run by Green Mountain Transit. It all sounds well and good, but in order to assure a ride, Kepnes says she often has to book a week in advance. This is the trouble with this system. You have to plan. I have no spontaneity or urgency, and that's the great anxiety. When I visited Kepnes, Barry had just gotten its first winter storm of the year. And Kepnes says the day before it came, she realized she didn't have any salt to melt the ice that would soon be covering her sidewalk. I just was beside myself with ang- with anxiety. There were certain things that I had 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 to get, and this is very rare because I try to live so I don't run out. But occasionally you have to get stuff. Kepner says she lays awake at night, gaming out strategies to get to the places she needs to go. How am I going to manage and rearrange my life, and who can I ask, and who can I count, 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 count on if I've got an urgent need? Boy, that is a tough thing. That is very hard. It's very, very stressful. This is half my life, is planning my transportation. So, we've got people like Marsha Kepnes who need public transportation. And then we've got people like our question asker Eve who want to use more of it. But 
like we've heard, the current system isn't really working for either of them. Which brings us back to the question we started with. What would it take to create a public transportation system that actually allows people to drive less or not at all? Angela and I figured the answer to Eve's question would be all about infrastructure. Big engineering projects, shiny new fleets of buses. But it turns out there's another huge variable here, human behavior. And, dare we say it, hypocrisy. The environmental community in Vermont is sizable. Uh, I think it's large enough if half of them used transit instead of their cars at least a lot of the times, if not most of the time, um, that would make more than a dent. Kurt McCormick, the state rep who chairs the House Transportation Committee, says if Vermonters really want better public transit, then we've all got to walk the walk. Or rather, ride the bus. It's nowhere near its potential. When you see a bus with 30 seats on it and there's only four people in the bus, obviously there's a potential for 30 to have seats. McCormick is raising a nagging question here about ridership. It increased steadily in Vermont from 2012 to 2015, but it dropped off in 2016. And according to a new state report, the numbers still haven't recovered. Until they do, McCormick says it'll be almost impossible to convince lawmakers to spend more money on upgrades. It's very difficult politically to put more money into transit if it doesn't look very likely that people will ride that transit. It's the sort of, if you build it, will they come question. This is Rochelle Gould. She's an assistant professor at the Rubenstein School at the University of Vermont. Absolutely, people need to want to engage in low-carbon forms of transportation. They have to want to try something other than their car. Gould studies environmental values and behavior. And she says even with growing awareness of climate change, old driving habits die hard. This becomes very complicated. Think about how am I going to manage getting myself from A to B to C and with kids and with pets and with everything else. How is this all going to work? If you own a car, you can probably relate to this. It's the same deal for our question asker Eve and her husband Paul. My husband might wait an extra 20 minutes or half an hour because the bus is really late. And so that's really frustrating. So that's one of the reasons he he usually gets to have the car. So part of this is on us and our willingness to really change our daily routine for the greater good. Rochelle Gould says a lot of our choices come down to this dichotomy, convenience versus morality. I think the way to approach this issue of transportation is to, is to work on both sides of that issue. So make it more and more convenient make it more and more feasible to do this in a practical way, to get around without a car, and also work on you know, awareness of this issue and, and how does it play into our larger moral concerns as a society, as a globe. It's a Friday afternoon, and a dozen people have gathered in a conference room at the Agency of Transportation in Barrie. Do we have anyone on the phone yet? There are public transit managers here, state transportation employees, and advocates for people with disabilities. You're joining us to review the progress that the Agency of Transportation has made on the Section 20 legislative study, and the purpose of it is to increase transit ridership in Vermont. 
Their primary goal is not to drastically overhaul Vermont's public transit system. They just want to help entice more Vermonters to use the system we already have. So the legislature was looking for guidance from the study if we have recommendations of ways to increase ridership and improve the public transit system, what are the highest priorities to do that and how much is it going to cost so that the legislature can uh, consider that in its next budget cycle. That's Stephen Fauble there. He's a longtime transportation consultant based in Montpelier. And the state hired him to oversee this transportation study. And sure, he's all for adding a bus route here and there, or running buses more frequently, or even launching a marketing campaign. But at best, you'd get incremental increases uh, in ridership as a result of those investments. Not nothing, but not a huge shift. How do you get a huge shift? If Rochelle Gould thinks we need to make public transit way more convenient in order to change people's habits, then Stephen Fauble thinks we need to make driving way less convenient. That's the only way to get the dramatic change Eve is asking about. Behavior change only happens in a crisis atmosphere or if the incentives change drastically from what what they are currently. Uh, And one major theme is changing the competitive balance between driving and transit. One way to do that is by rethinking parking. It sounds simple, but Stephen Fobble says this is the magic bullet answer to Eve's question. The number one issue, or really the number one, two, and three issue is parking. The availability of parking, the location of parking, and the pricing of parking. If you have a lot of free parking, transit is going to be a hard sell no matter what. Fobble says if you look around the country at places where people use public transit the most, Manhattan, downtown Boston, the Longwood Medical Area, San Francisco, you'll see that those places also have the highest cost of parking. And Fobble says that is not a coincidence. High parking car uh, charges will get people to take the bus instead. So more expensive parking will help, and so will more expensive gas. But these are not popular opinions, especially among elected officials. So for now at least, the political climate in Vermont doesn't look too conducive to those sorts of seismic policy shifts. But one guy isn't waiting for Montpelier to lead. How you doing, David? Yeah, there you go. Good to see you. Yeah. Uh, This is Eve Jacobs-Carnahan. Hi. Hi. And Eve is uh, the person who asked the question that spurred this whole reporting endeavor. Okay, great. Eve Um, and I meet up with David Blitterstorff at an industrial park in Barrie. Blitterstorff has a high profile in the renewable energy world. Thanks to his work on mountaintop wind turbines in Vermont, people either admire him or despise him. But his latest venture has nothing to do with wind. I said, what are we going to do about this carbon crisis? Well, we're going to have to do something about transportation because, as you know, in Vermont, it's almost half of our CO2 emissions and almost half of our fossil fuel use. Blittersdorf thinks one way to answer Eve's question is to invest in trains. And guess what? He happens to own 12 of them. Blittersdorf leads Eve and me inside one of his so-called bud cars, which are named for the manufacturer that originally built them. 88 people can sit... Uh, We have places for wheelchairs in the front and back. You can put about 136 people withstanding. So you can put a lot of folks in these things. Blitterstorff bought these self-propelled diesel-powered cars at auction a few years ago, and he envisions a passenger rail network that connects all the major population hubs in Vermont. He says Vermonters could leave their cars at home for the most part or get rid of them altogether and take the train to commute to work and run errands. Eve is intrigued, and since she lives less than a mile from the train tracks that run through Montpelier, she can imagine herself catching one of these trains. But she wonders about people who live farther out. I'm thinking of people I know who live in East Montpelier, Middlesex, Callis. If they have to get in the car to drive 
to Montpelier to get on the train, they're not going to mm-hmm. park and go on the train. And so that was a puzzle that I well, was wondering about. Well, part of the puzzle on uh, all the transit is, uh, I think in the United States, we have failed in the integration of all transit. Blittersdorf says Vermont needs a coordinated rail and bus system, where you take a combination of buses and trains to get where you need to go. In the transit world, this is called multimodal transportation. So you integrate the walking, the biking, the, uh, the short-haul busing, uh, and you integrate a system that works. And you run it like the Swiss, on time, reliable. <laughs> but to Eve's point, if you've got people in these far-flung rural locations... How are you going to be able to devise uh, a non-train transit system that gets those people from their homes to where your train is going to pick them up and bring them to wherever they want to go? We are probably not going to be able to take care of a lot of these people. And it goes back to our central problem. And that is what the car did by moving us into the sticks. There's a real cost to living far away from everywhere you need to go every day. That's Julie Campoli. She's an urban design consultant and the editor of Sustainable Transportation Vermont. We can't just spread out, you know, live everywhere, off by ourselves on 10-acre lots, and still have a way of getting around that that is environmentally benign. And so I'm asking people to kind of own that. And you're allowed to say that because you live in the middle of a very densely packed Burlington neighborhood. Well, yeah, on the other hand, I'm lucky to live here. And I think if I was moving here now at the age when I moved here, I wouldn't be able to afford it. So that that's really important that we create affordable housing for people of all different ages and income levels in our urban centers. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Campoli in her home office in Burlington's South End. Side note, housing affordability is something we've covered extensively in a past episode. We've got a link in the show notes if you missed it. Here in Burlington, Campoli gets around by bike and bus and car, and she says where we live has everything to do with how we travel, and vice versa. I realize it's really about how we move around, and unless we can change that in the U.S., we're never going to have the kind of wonderful places, healthy places, that we want to have. For Campoli, the gold standard is walkability. She's actually written a book about urban planning called Made for Walking. She says whether you're going to catch a bus or a train or just trying to shed your car to run errands, you're spending time walking. And most people will only willingly do that if it's a pleasant experience. And if that walk at either end of that journey is not safe and comfortable and relatively short, then people are not going to choose transit as the option if they can avoid it. So this is another part of the answer to Eve's question. What would it take to grow public transit in Vermont? Design places that are conducive to taking it. That requires a lot of planning and a lot of good urban design, but we have a great template for how to do it, and that's all of our downtowns, historic downtowns and villages. Back in the day, Julie Campoli says many of Vermont's mid-sized communities were connected by railroads and trolleys and buses. But we won't be able to bring those services back until we revitalize those communities. If you think in terms of urban centers like St. Johnsbury and Hardwick and Springfield and Windsor and Bennington, you know, those are the centers for those rural areas. So if, if we focus on rebuilding population 
and economic activity into those places, they will become transit, much more transit friendly. Until we can do that, if we can do that, there may be a way to create a different 21st century transit system. One that rivals the car and allows us to live where we live right now. We could select cars that are safe and well-maintained and drivers that are safe and well-maintained and allow them to become basically public Uber drivers. We heard this public transit fantasy from our listener, John Snell. And any transactions about where I want to go and what I would pay for it could all be handled by phone. But it's not just fantasy. This general concept is actually catching on in the public transit world. It's called microtransit. Microtransit really is sort of the, the next evolution of public transportation. If you sort of think about it, it's sort of the sort of public transit 2.0 or 3.0. Zach Wasserman is the chief strategy officer at a New York-based company called Via. We license microtransit technology and sell contracted microtransit services to cities and transit agencies and departments of transportation all over the place. Okay, so what does this mean? Maybe you've taken a Lyft or an Uber before. This is called on-demand transportation. Microtransit takes it a step further. On-demand meets carpooling meets public transit. So with a microtransit service, um, you take out your smartphone, the smartphone immediately triangulates your location, you say where you want to go, and then a vehicle is dispatched to pick you up. You get in the vehicle and it takes you to where you're going, and along the way, it makes short stops to pick up and drop off other people. But it does that in a, a really efficient and seamless way. This company, Via, licenses the technology and sometimes the drivers and vehicles to make this happen. The idea is to help communities modernize their public transit options, increase ridership, and, of course, give people a viable alternative to using their own vehicle. Zach Wasserman says Via builds accessibility into its services, so you can use it even if you don't have a smartphone or a credit card or if you have a physical disability. And he says interest in microtransit is growing. Yeah, we are in 22 countries and in 20 states. The, the adoption has been extremely brisk, I mean, we could say even exponential. And soon enough, Via may be in our very own capital city. A bunch of people in Montpelier are hoping to launch an on-demand microtransit pilot project. They want to use Via's system and a few vans to replace three fixed bus routes. For decades, we've been separating personal vehicles from public transit, um, and they're seen as two completely separate ways of getting around. What I would hope the direction that Vermont, Montpelier can go is actually blending those together. Laura Byron is with the Sustainable Montpelier Coalition, which is one of the groups working toward the pilot. And so microtransit can increase accessibility to transportation, including linking up with the buses that go to places like Burlington and St. Johnsbury. So it's all connected. We see that this is a uh, no-brainer as far as people wanting to use this as a way of getting around town rather than their personal cars. Dan Jones, also with the coalition, says the same old, same old public transit will not get enough people out of their own cars. And he says until that happens, downtown Montpelier is going to continue to be majority parking. Like 60 percent of our downtown is dedicated to parking lots. This means that we don't have the ability to do any kind of development in town of housing, commercial space. We're basically victims of the car. 
The Sustainable Montpelier Coalition thinks microtransit in Montpelier could be a model for other Vermont communities. But Zach Wasserman of VIA says there's one caveat. In rural areas like ours, it's not always feasible to offer instant on-demand rides. So people might have to call ahead. Kind of like what Marsha Kepnes already does. Do you take his sugar and anything else besides uh, I sugar? generally take it, uh, I'll have a little milk, but uh, just that. Milk. Perfect, yeah, a little this milk. This is lactose-free 1%. Marsha Kepnes is the woman in Barry we met earlier, who's legally blind and can't drive and has to plan her whole life around public transportation. Since Kepner spends so much time thinking about public transit, I ask her if she'd try to answer Eve's question. For a moment, we're going to make you the secretary of the agency of transportation. Money is no object. You just get to realize and create the thing that's going to solve the problem. What, what would that be? All right. Can I pre- preface this? Please do. All right. I just want to say... I had issues uh, with... Kepnes tells me the question reminds her of a survey she got from Green Mountain Transit, where they asked people to say how many pennies from each dollar should go to various components of the transit system. And she doesn't like this kind of question. This is not fair to ask me to decide how to spend money. It's not fair, Kepnes says, because this isn't about money. What you've got to do in this system prior to to leaving it to me to tell you how to spend money is to change your attitudes. You have to change the attitude towards the needs of people. You have to have an empathy. Kepnes says she wishes everybody working on public transit in Vermont had to live without their cars for a month so they'd understand what it's like when you need to get somewhere, but you can't. It's not money. It's empathy. You have to need, you have to feel the need. And I don't know how to do that except to talk as I talk. To talk as she talks and to hope someone's listening. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Pete Hirschfeld reported this episode with me. And thanks to Eve Jacobs-Carnahan for the great question. If you want to be a part of our reporting process, head to bravelittlestate.org and submit your own question about Vermont. While you're there, you can vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. You can support us by becoming a sustaining member of VPR or recommend our show to your friends and loved ones. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our digital producer is Elodie Reed, and we have engineering support from Peter Angish and Chris Albertine. Special thanks to Beth Wood. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes... You need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.